Welcome back, Warhorse Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2. This episode features an interview with Ben from Pitch Black Forge. Ben focuses on sort of clandestine self-defense tools. He has a couple of standard models and um, very interesting designs and uh, very high level of craftsmanship and thought that goes into what he makes as well he's just an all-around fascinating guy most of our conversation is based off of a series of youtube videos i believe there's five of them at this point that he recently posted They all revolve sort of around the theme of, though he doesn't describe it this way, uh, the criminal of purpose. It's tips, tricks, tactics for, as they say, living rough, but also more specifically riding the rails. If I had to turn to one person who I would, whose opinion and advice I would trust on how to do this this would be the guy Um, so I very much appreciated speaking with him and um, enjoyed it quite a bit so I hope that you guys find it interesting and check him out it's not his Instagram is not all just that's what I said this is an interesting guy he's got all sorts of um areas of interest and him he throws a lot of that up on Instagram if you're new to the warhorse go over to patreon sign up you get the full experience the website is goldengoatguild.net i am andrew edwards the author of whatever pretty much everyone seems to agree at this point is the greatest novel of the past 10 years nobody has disputed this yet that's pretty good check it out you can get it on amazon you can get it on the website so this first module segment i'm going to focus on a quick rundown my opinions on precision rifle among the many super spurgy sub niche areas of the internet into which you can tread um, the precision rifle world is one that you may want to avoid it's sort of a rich man's game 
it's a little bit spurgy. It draws in not the worst of the gun crowd, but being that the gun crowd, and recall, I am a massive um, gun guy, but the internet gun crowd, you know, two-way, there's no community, but let's just say aggregate of individuals that occasionally show up on the internet is one of the worst. Um, the most derivative, the most unoriginal, some of the biggest, you know, for all of the rehashed and reheated memes about um, the sheep and the wolf and the sheepdog or all of this sort of shit, like this shit, the same stuff is being spewed out daily on Twitter as if it's a massive revelation. It was being spewed out daily as if it was a massive revelation 20 years ago. I guarantee you because I was there. And I'm sure that it, you know, precedes that by, by a long shot as well. The point is, um, there's some pretty nasty waters to wade through. And so I am not an expert. I think I've attended four um, solid precision rifle classes. It's a euphemism you know, for as close as civilians will get to sniper work. So your classes are going to vary. Some of them have a fair bit of field craft. Um, John Hurth at Tier Group used to teach a class that was essentially all of the field, all of the sniper craft, you know, that didn't involve pulling the trigger. And um, there's a lot to it. There are some amazing instructors, some not so great. I can give you my opinions on if you want to take classes, where to go or whatnot, but I won't necessarily have time to get into that in a very cramped 30-minute 25 minute spiel but suffice to say that because much of the training is really just relevant to shooting off your back porch or bench rest sort of stuff just putting targets on paper there are one or two classes that focus more on hunting I have seen I do not seek this stuff out and I haven't for I mean the better part of 10 years I have not been involved or or sought out this sort of stuff but I did notice um, the trend was moving towards integrating I think it's usually you know like t precision rifle one and two and one you know it's a thousand dollars to learn how to pull the trigger and two a thousand dollars to learn how to carry your rifle in the woods and then three um, sort of a stripped down sniper course, if you will, some of the field craft. Major Plaster's book, I think it's just called Sniper. I've had it forever. It's the go-to. I'm sure it's missing a thing here or there. But as far as as far as I know, it's um, super comprehensive and more or less 
gives the whole game away. Nothing replaces um, doing it in the field. Whatever I say, if we, for example, hypothetical, we did a 30-minute download, QRD, on this type of field craft. If you took what was said in 30 minutes and you went out and applied it, um, in my opinion, you, not only will you have saved yourself thousands and thousands of dollars, not just on classes, but on travel, on rounds spent, on time away from work, time away from your family, what have you. You would still be, in my opinion, far, far ahead of the so-called, you know, gun community. The gun community, there's no such thing as a community. It's one of the most divisive, stupid things that has been gathered around as a symbol of this last desperate hope that somebody somewhere is going to do something and then I'll do something in their wake and then oh, this fucking nightmare will end. That too is 20 years old just in my firsthand experience. I hope that we can reach some younger guys. So, and I mean, fuck, you might be 38. You're 10 years or nine years younger than me. Um, so, and, and again, it's just, it's just my observation. So I'll try and condense this down as much as I can to like every man level gear. And, um, you know, it's pretty much extemporaneous here. I got a few notes bullet points to hit <clears throat> make sure I'm all set on snooze weapons are secure dogs are in their beds beverage is secured get a little sip of my beverage if you don't mind it's a little chamomile Okay, so real quick, um, to get this out of the way, if you are the guy with 10 grand burning a hole in your pocket at the edge of the apocalypse, you know, go ahead and you're you need more than that. Um, you know, probably, I mean, you could probably do it for 20. Ammo, a stash, a total set, of, a total kit to include rifle, rangefinder, spotting scope, um, rifle scope, you know, accessories, slings, lens caps, this sort of shit, and then training. I don't, th I don't, th there's a couple places where you can, well, so if you're that guy, just go find the classes and go do it, and you're fine. Um, the class that I mentioned, and this wasn't necessarily designed as a pitch for that, it's not even solidified yet, but the class that I mentioned um, that, God willing, you know, we can put together at later off later in the year um, will certainly be something more comprehensive and hopefully priced for the everyman. But I mean, it, given <laughs> the financial realities today, like 
and the the widening gulf between the everyman and uh, his tether to reality. You know, who knows what that'll look like, but we'll find out. But that's where this particular QRD is coming from. My recommendation, and keep in mind that I did not attend SHOT Show. I don't, I don't even know that SHOT Show is coming up until my feed is flooded with it. I don't give a shit about the industry, uh, the trade shows. I don't really, unless something like the shield, the personal shield from Dune shows up, or I don't know, um, night vision duels drop in price by like 60% or something that revolutionary, like fuck it, I don't have time for that. I don't, I'm really not that interested in it. That's really my gripe with probably 90% of um, so-called gun people. What they're really there for is to be consumers. That's it. It's just that that's their thing. Well, that's your thing too. Neat. How does that bond us in any way ideologically? How does that give me confidence that you're going to back me up in a riot? It doesn't. How does it give me any confidence that I could even trust you to leave my kids at your house? It doesn't. The likelihood is that you're just some fat, stupid, checked out shit who's going to feed them a fucking TV dinner, poison the fucking hell out of them, and stick them in front of the TV. And that's at best. At, my, at worst, you know, we won't even go to the worst. But that, that's where we're at in the, uh, the collapse. So, with that said, you could probably take some of my specific recommendations, click those up, you know, five years or whatever, but... As far as I know, like I said, I'm not aware of much that's really revolutionary. If I were to get into a dedicated um, night vision scope or thermal scope, I would probably have to make some adjustments in terms of my rig. But I don't have any application for that right now. Would I? If you want to give me one, yeah, I'll take one. I'd love it. It'd be fun. But... um it's not a massive priority and you can probably pick it up down the road in other ways, if you know what I mean. So it's just the reality. All right. So my recommendation is the Remington. Is it the M 700 or the P 700? It's uh, it's your police model. They come in like 20, 22, 24. If you get, my opinion is get that, either get a Sawzall or get the Milwaukee um, portable bandsaw with a metal, metal cutting blade. Score it with the plumber's pipe cutting tool. Just score, measure down, chop it down to 18.5. <clears throat> If you like 20, 20 is fine as well. You could probably, last time I checked, you can, you know, a lot of people buy these rifles. A lot of people buy everything back to the consumer grade or the consumer like compulsion thing. If you need to, it's damn near um, a necessity 
and and kind of verging into the criminal of purpose skill set, you can sort of suss out what was purchased. Um, not necessarily like on a whim, but what was purchased with visions of something that never materialized and now just needs to go away, whether that's eBay or, or wherever, you know, you go to buy shit. Secondhand, I mean. There are plenty of rifles that have a hundred rounds through them and a few dings, but are virtually mint otherwise in, in internals in terms of function 500 to 600 bucks I think you could probably get somebody's Remington police rifle on mine I have oh man it'd be a 10 it's a 15 year old scope um, from the global war on terror what was it the Mark Mark 4 I think it's Mark 4 Leopold um, 4 to 14 I think those, you know, those were 1500 bucks when they were new, but those two are like 500 bucks. So you're $1000 in to what 10 years ago if you let me get through to the few other mods that I will suggest is a fantastic weapon. Is it the hottest newest shit that you can impress um the fake and gate dipshits down at the range? No, fuck that. But it will absolutely uh, suffice and very robust, very accurate right out of the box. So the couple other mods I would make, I would drop the, like the Timney, I think is what I have adjustable trigger, replace that right away and bring your trigger pull out of the box, I'm guessing they come around four pounds. Bring that down to two, somewhere between 1.75 and two. You can go way down, you know, but I would recommend something around two is my preference. But that alone accurizes the shit out of the rifle. You can take the, I think they're called bedding screws. You can, the quality of these screws out of the box is not always the best. You can replace those very cheaply literally under a dollar with um, extruded screws. You'll have to do some digging if you care. Um, I would suggest now that Magpul supplies, you know, if you're, if you're not aware of this stuff, maybe the most poorly named product ever uh, is called bottom metal. And this is the housing around the trigger that also generally um, leads into where the floor plate is on uh, your out-of-the-box rifle. There's a little spring magazine in there, internal magazine. You can take this to a gunsmith and they can route the stock. Those come with fantastic stocks. Um, Macmillan, I think? No, shit. It may be Macmillan, but it's like a composite. I really like them. They're very fat, very solid. Um, you can do it. I've done it. You can, if you have the tools, you can route it out. You do need to go into um, some metal, 
but it's not it's not terribly difficult and a gunsmith can do it for probably a hundred bucks the part itself is probably about a hundred bucks and this will allow you to have the 10 round magpul magazines you can get i think they're 40 bucks a little pricey for a magazine how many do you really need so now you're in another say a hundred probably more for the but let's just keep it round numbers because it's easier say 100 for the trigger gunsmith 100 bottom metal 100 spend another 100 on a couple mags so now you're in 1500 bucks and you are at you have a sub moa rifle um fantastic american-made glass assuming you didn't get a piece of shit if it was secondhand You're going to need a rangefinder. You can find these all day long on eBay or other places. Again, some guy gets it, never uses it. Even if he did use it, how, how do you fuck up a rangefinder? In my opinion, this, the reason that this is a sort of a rich man's game to some extent is it, it's a little pricey. Um, and the, there's not a lot of like mid-tier stuff you know you can get by with vortex just fine but if you drop it i don't know if i drop a leupold i'm fine so i would suggest that's what i do i stick with leupold across the board american made in portland yeah it's good enough for me rangefinder scope uh the rangefinder obviously needs to match the most of them go to a thousand I think that's pretty standard. You need to go to at least a thousand. So probably another couple hundred bucks. I think they used to be four new or something. And now spotting scopes used, I don't know how, what that market looks like. Um, I have a 60 power. To tell you the truth, that's probably the one area of my kit that Maybe not the one. I mean, I do believe in upgrading your weaponry as you can as you go forward. That uh, spotting scope, I would like to upgrade to an 80 power. And I would take the Vortex. They make an American-made version. It's fine. Plenty good. Um, I don't need Swarovski. Again, if you want to, if you want to send me one, yeah, I'll take it. Great. But it's that extra 2%, if I have like a 98% score in terms of all of my metrics, all of my criteria, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, sometimes you want the absolute best. Sometimes it really doesn't fucking matter and you're doing it for vanity and ego and to all these other really fucked up reasons. I believe that you need a spotting scope. Binos you can get by without, though probably long-term, you know, there's probably a case to be made that the binos might be maybe even more valuable. But for another day, not in a QRD like this, I have seven and a half minutes, not even that. Um, ammo, hunting, I'm going to go with the Hornady A-Max all day long. For... Stack it deep stuff, the M118 long rifle. It, at this point, you may or may not be priced out. It may or may not be available. Lake City makes the best. Some other people make shit that's 
very comparable, if not as good. Um, and I like it because it, it's a it's a well thought out round, and it is available, and it will do the job. Now, what is the job? I think for the 308 round, which is very common, if you're looking at long, long term and all sorts of contingencies, and you don't necessarily want to go down a bunch of little specialty niche routes, I like the 308. Do I like the 65? Yeah. Do I like the 338? Yeah. Do I like the 460? Yeah. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go all in on on those at this point anyway. I have not. Um, do I want them? Yeah, of course. But um, the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of 308 laying around in this country, and um, my understanding of you know ballistics is is not profound in any sense. It's more based on experience and the rest of my skill set and the assumptions that I make. In terms of hunting, I'm not going to take a shot beyond 400. That would be that would be a hail mary for me. My interests, uh, my values, and um, ultimately my tactics derived therefrom. Are all buttressed on the front end by an absolute commitment to being in shape, being mobile, and having some skill physically. So I'm going to close the distance to make one shot. And if I can close it so much, even on an animal, that I can get a headshot, if that's if we're still dealing with regulations and that's legal, sure, I won't. In Alaska, you can do that, as far as I know, all day long. Um, that would be my preference. I'm not going to spoil meat. Um, I'm not going to chase anything. It's a sure shot. If With that package, and again, even you know, a, a two or even a one day training class on the basics of how to just pull the trigger. That's all you're doing. You can, I would put more emphasis on the breath work, which by the way, did I say on the far side of this module and the interview with Ben um, is, a, is a breath work module essential. Um, and if you happen to be one of those people that every time I say breath work, it's like, ah, fuck that. You again with this shit. This is probably the one that you, this is like the lazy man's bare fucking minimum lesson. Okay, so we'll deal with that then. I got three minutes. Okay. I'll try and throw in a couple of quick, dirty tips and tricks that I've picked up. There's a million of them out there. Clean your weapon from the breech forward. Um, doing it the other way, you, you stand a chance of marring the bore. I should mention as well, if you, cu if you cut down your rifle, 
go on Midway and get yourself one of these, uh, what is it called? A crowning tool, I think. It's essentially just going to clean up the crown, the edge of the bore that you cut and assuredly left some burrs. So it's going to handle that. It's like 14 bucks. All right. If you're going to your area of operations and your rifle gets jumbled up, dropped, what have you, and you're not sure of your zero. We can't, there's no way I could fit what a zero is and all this other sort of stuff into 30 minutes. So another day. What you can do, you can set up your backpack. You can fix it to a location. You can put tape in the front and the back and the sides so that you know right where that backpack's supposed to be. Put more tape on your backpack. Set the rifle in the tape so it's very tight, very certain. Find something at hopefully as close to 100. You really want ideally 100 yards. You've got your rangefinder. You didn't drop that. It still works. Range out to 100. Find something that will leave a mark when you hit it. So you want a wall. Maybe a rock will do. Trees don't work. Um, maybe a board. Depending on where you are, what you have. Make sure that the impact will show. Pull the trigger. Set after the recoil, set your rifle back up exactly where it was. Find your point of aim. Find where the bullet impacted. That's why you don't want to try and do this past 100 yards. If you have 14 power, for instance, this is pretty easy. Have your buddy dial, you know, you tell him where to dial so that those crosshairs move around until they are on that point of impact. So you have fired one round, you've made one moment's noise. If this is a tactical environment, one shot, yeah, it may draw attention, but it, it's better than standing there. It's better one than firing off 10 shots. And it's probably better than abandoning the mission, though that might be necessary. And it's um, certainly better than trying to pull off some, something like a mission with the uncertainty inherent to the situation. You don't know if you're zeroed or not. Oh, I didn't make it. 30 minutes. Okay. I hope that you enjoy this interview with Ben. Again, fascinating guy, and I really think you'll like it. I might, if I can remember, try and tuck that last tip in um, on the far end. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the main main expenditure of my time right now, and it's what I've been focused on. That skill set um, that's turned into the company has been my main focus for the last 10, 12 years, something like that. Okay. Um, I think a little, bit, a little bit over 10 years now with forging. Um, and it grew out of <clears throat> it grew out of welding kind of organically. Um, I'd gone to school for welding years ago and worked on an assembly line. Uh, the thought was actually to make custom bicycle frames, and then I found that was just the market is completely untenable. And uh, while working for John Deere and being frustrated with factory life once again, um, I was brainstorming and looking around online and remembered seeing blacksmiths on like PBS when I was a kid and um, did a little bit of research and found that 
there were classes to be taken just a few hours from where I lived and uh, put together a plan. And within eight months, I was in a blacksmithing program in a community college up in the mountains of North Carolina. And that's, that's how it started. I quit a job that after I'd saved up some money, went on a little motorcycle trip and then moved up to the hills to take one class a week, starting out just an intro class. And it all kind of came together from there um, with a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of finagling, a lot of, a lot of sacrifice along the way. So yeah, that's my main endeavor now is this company that's somehow turned into mostly self-defense stuff, knives. Because um, while I was doing architectural smithing for the last 10 years or so, I was taking classes and studying and, and making knives on the side the entire time. And uh, when I decided to not have a boss anymore, I thought I was going to be doing more bushcraft, um, outdoorsy hunting type stuff, but then um, made a couple self-defense knives for myself. And it turns out that's what people really wanted. So that's, that's my full-time gig now. It's mostly focused on self-defense, but kind of by accident on, uh, on my end. So, yeah, that's my main, that's my main gig. Um, I don't have a combatives background, no military, anything like that, no LEO. But um, I guess mindset-wise and skill set, they kind of converged on this self-defense knife thing that's my bread and butter now. Trying to move out of that, um, doing a little bit more housewares and stuff coming up this year, but... Uh, honestly, the clientele I have from the self-defense world is so awesome that I don't foresee abandoning that kind of simple knife making ever because the people I deal with are salt of the earth, like really, really awesome, very patient, very kind. <clears throat> and if you're, you know, if you're in the 2A world or, or like the self-defense world, you can attest to that. These are, these are good people. Um, they make great clients. So... That's yeah. That's what I do. I make yeah. shanks, really, really <laughs> nice shanks. I would imagine housewares would invite yeah. some. Uh, we got glitches. You're pausing. Am and I? You just disappeared. Sounds like tuning a piano. So you're coming in just fine for me. Yeah. Well, I'm in a basement. Um, I've got, what? I've got full reception here. So if if it's just audio, that's fine too. <clears throat> Yeah, uh, I should have said we're not recording video. Um, okay. Yeah, sure. So hopefully that that's kind of the trick is maybe the audio sneaks through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can hear you just fine. Um, well, I was going to say, um, I would imagine the customer service end of it is going to be much easier than than the housewares. You know, I would probably invite uh, invites. Uh, I could see you, you know more returns, more more. Um, desire for the customer input. I mean, what I, what I see you doing is you have a, a real um, kind of streamlined, you have two or three, maybe four or five different options. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I make a, a couple different knives and then I make a, some uh, non-metallic self-defense tools. Also, I usually do limited runs on a pre-order basis only because it's such a lean operation. I can't have inventory sitting around. Um, uh, the general slogan in retail is that inventory is evil, but if you're a one-man operation in a garage, then it's especially evil. Um, so I don't I don't sink time into stuff usually that isn't already sold. I open pre-orders um, for a limited amount of time until I have um, 
until I estimate that I'm going to be busy for a while, and then I shut them down and make the things. Um, so there's usually just a few items available at any given time, and folks kind of wait until I uh, do a re-release of something something that's been done before or come up with something new. So yeah, it's, it's fairly streamlined just because it's just me, and it would be absurd for me to be working on 10 projects at once. Um, so between heat treat, uh, acquiring the materials, and uh, all the consumables, it's just not tenable to have, you know, 20 options going on at once. And uh, yeah, the housewares world would be different, a bit more difficult too, especially when you're dealing with clients that want, you know, uh, matching finishes or patinas on stuff. Like I got this candlestick and it doesn't match my other candlesticks and they want to return it. Some guy that's getting a knife to carry inside of his waistband um, to protect himself isn't so much worried about, um, about things like that. There's an aesthetic consideration, but it's really secondary to uh, the purpose of the tool. So, yeah. 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 And I've so, dealt with the housewares world because I've, I've worked in uh, production and custom architectural shops for years um, all around the country. And uh, it's definitely a different clientele. Um, designers, interior decorators, and housewives can be exceedingly um, picky in a way that uh, doesn't make sense for me as a maker. And they often want to tell you how to make something that they don't understand at all. Um, and I've heard, I get very few <clears throat> nonsensical requests from knife people, you know? And uh, when I do get them, I just shut them down, you know? I'm not doing Final Fantasy swords or uh, karambits. I don't make anything that I don't like or wouldn't carry on my own. So that's a, that's a privilege of having established a good client base at this point. So if somebody asks for a particular knife and I don't, I don't like Bowies personally, I'm not gonna make anybody a Bowie unless they pay me three times what it's worth because I haven't come this far in life to spend my time doing things that I don't remotely enjoy. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very, um, very privileged position, but hard-earned. Good. Well, well done. Yeah. Well, tell me, tell me about... Um, Maybe not sens know. sensible from a business standpoint if there's money to be made, but I'm hard-headed. Yeah. What else can we do? So, um, in terms of your, you know, your materials and your, your approach to knife making, you're not, you know, I'm sorry, you cut out again. Did I, um, in terms of your approach, is that better? Can you pick me up now? You're, you're cutting out once again. You're, you're all, you're, you sound like a robot. Shoot. Okay. You're here again. Uh, can you just repeat that question? Maybe we can edit it in. Yeah, how is this coming through? Any better? It's it's perfect now. Okay. Um, so so what is your process? Is it you're entirely you're forging your own? You're working from pre-existing stock. Kind of walk me through. Um, you know what sort of materials you're using, and if you wouldn't mind, and yeah, yeah, I can go into that. Um, I use a, a really limited number of alloys. Uh, for both the knives and any of the other metal tools. And that's uh, because I know a couple alloys really, really well. I know that the batches that I get from the supplier are incredibly consistent, and I know the heat treat formulas for them to a T. Uh, so adding in new alloys into the mix means um, messing around with recipes for heat treat. You know, it's like uh, if a baker is happy with one flour mix, why would he have five? <clears throat> when one does 
perfectly well for everything. So I use 80 CRV2 for almost all the metallic stuff. It's yeah. a, the few modern steels that's formulated specifically for blades. It's incredibly tough. It's hard, but not too hard. It's an easy uh, material to do heat treat on. It does get a fairly deep decarburization, unlike simpler tool steels. Um, so that has to be accounted for, but um, I'm used to it at this point. Most of the uh, the self-defense stuff is almost all uh, stock removal, so I just get bars of steel, cut things to shape, and then uh, shape them on a grinder, do my own heat treat in-house, my own finishing, I do my own leather work for the stuff that has a leather sheath, uh, my own Kydex for all the plastic stuff. Um, as far as the non-metallic tools, some of them use uh, pre-existing um, baubles, like uh, D20s that are used for playing D&D, but I do some uh, some resin casting in-house. I do a bit of bron bronze casting in-house in as well. Um, so I just use bronze pellets and a uh, casting setup. And a little bit of carving, but mostly I cast from existing, existing objects. Uh, often bootlegs of old toys, which is unusual, but definitely has its funny crossover in the self-defense market. Because I'm selling to 35 to 45 year old guys who all remember Skeletor. It's a, yeah. it's a really weird niche. Um, <clears throat> but I've looked at the demographics for the people that are buying my stuff, and it's yeah, it's it's very much that. Um, so yeah, the most of the self defense stuff is is stock removal as far as the knives go. I've got an extensive history of forging, and I can forge a knife to shape. I've forged kitchen knives. I've forged lots of things over the years. But for the really simple stuff on a production run. It actually doesn't make any sense time-wise to forge, say, my shuriken or my self-defense daggers to shape because the forging process um, puts a lot of really asymmetrical pressures onto the metal. And after you're done forging it to shape, you have to get all of the scale off uh, from, the, from the fire. You have to do a separate round of, of normalizing on top of that. There's a whole lot of extra goings-on that have to happen with a, a knife that's forged to shape that just aren't there um, with uh, with stock removal, or they're much simpler with a stock removal knife. Um, there are some shapes that can only be uh, accomplished by forging, and, but I don't tend to use those shapes right now. Um, if you want a brute to forge finish on like a kitchen knife, I can do that. But uh, for for a shuriken. It's it's, uh, it's just unnecessary steps. It slows things down. It's it's not economical. Um, so yeah, so it's it's mostly stock removal. Everyone in knife making goes to the grinder eventually. Some of us just do it sooner rather than later. Um, I don't. <laughs> there's no shame in that, you know. No, um, no. There's no shame in it at all. They're and tools. if you're trying to make, make hard use items that are affordable for the end user, where utility is is primary, yeah. then Wasting my time just means I have to charge more uh, to the end user, which is I don't really want to do. I'd like to be able to afford my own work, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's stock removal and uh, a bit of random bronze and, and resin casting mixed in. Because um, I do the self-defense stuff and also do some little glow-in-the-dark doodads to help you find your keys in the middle of the night. Um, have production runs of morale patches made, some shirts and merch. Um all fitting the the same aesthetic basically somehow um it makes enough sense that people buy it i guess and you you're 
you're just now getting into into YouTube and you've done the series of um, what would you call them train hopping like do's and don'ts but more like cautionary yeah a lot of cautionary tales because I see um, part of it is I'm just trying to get used to to YouTube as a as a format doing longer format talks because um, uh, kind of capped out on Instagram and um, capped out on followers but also there's a time cap on that and there's an attention cap with that particular app so yeah I've been exploring YouTube as a as a medium and uh, one of the things that I don't get to touch on or don't touch on much on my Instagram is riding freight trains um, which I've done off and on with varying frequencies since 2001 so yeah I've done these do's and don'ts uh, tips and tricks uh, some cautionary tales some kind of funny stories of uh, life on the road particularly applied to uh, to riding trains but it's got crossover with bug out survival general stealth camping um, and the reality of sometimes people find themselves in a tragic situation and they're houseless it's better to have a little bit of understanding of that skill set before that happens to you so um, hopefully it's not just being watched by people who have an interest in riding trains because that's a that's a really small corner of the world yeah so there's i think there's five of those now um varying lengths trying to get used to it it's been the response has been pretty decent and uh the the presence on youtube of train riders is kind of comes in a very limited number of flavors at this point. There's really long videos of people actively riding trains, some of them taking really, really high-quality video with drones. Um, a lot of these guys are hobbyists. They're not long-time riders. They're not people that live on the rails. They're, they're guys that have a real job and can afford uh, all this fancy equipment. And then there's um, interviews on you know, a couple uh, pretty famous podcasts that we've seen or, you know, interviewers on YouTube, like Soft White Underbelly, with, uh, with train riders who are mostly um, the other sort, the fuck-up, drug addict, runaway, um, hedonist types. And I'm neither of those, so I'm trying to just contribute a, a slightly different perspective on ac actually riding trains and, and on why someone would do such a thing. Um, yeah. I was curious, you know, can you give me a little rundown? I'm, I have no experience riding trains. I have always, I mean, I'm aware sort of loosely, you know, of the history and then what maybe it's developed into, but there is, from what I can gather, um, there's not just one sub subculture, um, involved in this. Is that yeah. right? I mean, that's right. That's right. People can you, can you, maybe run me through a little bit of the social picture. I mean, you said there's the fuck ups, but yeah. it's not all fuck ups, right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, yeah. So I started writing a little over 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, I had known about specifically about punks, people who came from, from punk rock, especially like the crusty anarcho punk end of things, riding freight trains for a couple of years at that point. But I didn't, I only knew one other person who was sober who rode trains. Um, he's still a really good friend of mine and we've since ridden together, but back then our timing just didn't match up. So I was hitchhiking around the country and got picked up by an older train rider who did not come from punk, wasn't part of our subculture. Um, he was an old fruit tramp, which means he would, did migrant labor back in the seventies and onward, uh, 
harvesting fruit all around the country, and the way he would get around was via freight train. He had train on the brain from an early age, and he rode trains like and did migrant labor that way for a couple decades, and went on to become a railroad worker just because of the, the freight train obsession, and also being willing to work, being ardently blue collar. So this guy picked me up, and um, we had a short conversation. I found out he was going to ride trains out of I think it was Brunswick, Maryland, to Cumberland, and then on to upstate New York. And uh, he took me on my first couple train rides that day. It was the happiest of accidents. We're still in touch. He's still a friend and mentor. And um, he's uh, not a runaway fuck-up drug addict. He's the other sort. He's like an old-school hobo who's got a real job now, but still goes and rides freights when he, um, when he has time off. So I, I learned from him, which is really nice because my introduction was from someone who um, might have a drink or two, but he's not like a heroin addict who sleeps under bridges uh, as a way of, of, of life, um, but just has wanderlust. So there's that. There's these old guys, these holdovers. There's not many of them left because a lot of them are old and gone or retired, retired from the road. Um, at that point, there were also these crazy old tramps who didn't work at all. They were tramps, not hobos. They were completely unwilling to work. They just wandered around the country collecting food stamps in various states illegally. They'd have like food stamps in five states and they would just go on a big circuit and collect their stamps and never work at all. Um, some of them were in a pretty notorious train riding gang called FTRA. I knew some of those guys before they got, before they, almost all of them died. Um, so there's, Already back 20 years ago, there was like the punks, there was some random hippie, like burner, uh, rainbow gathering kids that rode trains some too. Then there's these older school guys that were before us who were like the hobo hobos. And then there was like the tramp drug addled crazies. We all kind of coexisted. Um, not so peaceably, but we, we knew each other, kind of put up with each other. And since then, most of the, the, most of the old hobos are gone. Um, there's still some folks who come from kind of the same world as me that do migrant labor. They'll do sugar beet harvest up in Minnesota, harvest blueberries, cran cranberries, all the cranberry juice you've ever drank was probably touched by punks at some point. Um, apples, almonds, gooey ducks. I know a few guys that still travel around doing the, um, the migrant labor stuff that are, that are, that are punk rockers, but their, uh, their punks will work. And then there's, um... Now this, there's still like crusties who won't work at all that just travel and do fentanyl. And there's a, a newer breed of kids who only ride so they can take cool videos for YouTube or for their blog. They don't ride when it's dark. They don't ride when the weather is shitty. If a good train doesn't come, they'll just take a take transit or get a ride or fly to a cooler place. And it's all about the social media presence. And that was... <clears throat> That's a really new development because, you know, um, it was film cameras when I first started riding and no one even had a phone or a scanner, nothing of the sort. So now there's, there's, there's always been like a variety of people riding, but the social media thing is, has added a new, a new sort of person into the mix. Um, and those folks generally have nothing to do with the people who ride full time or make a life out of it. They're just like urban explorer, parkour, nerd, adventurer, college kids. Um, so yeah, there's, there's always been 
a number of little subcultures involved that have kind of a tenuous uh relate you know relationship with one another not always so peaceable um and now i'm old compared to most of them i'm 43 i've been sober my entire adult life straight edge actually so like very very sober um so from jump i was kind of on the outside of all of it um like i was within a subculture but i wasn't just the straight edge kid who hung out with other straight edge hardcore kids i was a weird straight edge punk dude who did migrant labor and rode freight trains and was um kind of two two feet in every world in in a couple worlds one foot in, in each of a couple worlds at, at any given time kind of on the outside of all of it um so now when i run into kids in yards like i don't i don't even know like what to make of them i generally don't even talk to anybody if i do i heckle them um i'm old enough now that uh the when I, last time I was on the road like a year and a half ago, um, whenever I would see a crew of younger kids in a yard, I would just yell at them and tell them to get jobs. And uh, <laughs> they didn't they didn't know it was a joke at first. Like no one's ever joked with them. They've never been around men or something. I don't know what the fuck their deal is. But uh, yeah, they thought they thought I was some local or just some hiker who actually had a problem with them until they you know realized that I have throat tattoos and um, yeah. And then my clothes were as dirty as theirs. So yeah, there's there's always like a, a mix of people and, and my uh my place in that schema has always been kind of a weird one. Um but I've stuck it out, um, where a lot of people stopped traveling completely or died. because uh, a lot of the folks that I came up around killed themselves or got murdered or overdosed. They're just not around anymore. Um that's that's the reality of the uh the fuck up end of things. Yeah. Some of them came from hard lives and there was, you know, stuff that they ever weren't ever going to escape. And some of them just made some real, real fucking stupid choices. Um, but a lot of, a lot of them are just not around anymore. Um, one way or another, a couple of murders, a bunch of suicides, a lot of, a lot of overdoses. So kids that you see in yards are often, it's been interesting over the years, how many times I've, sat in a catch-out spot, watched another crew of kids 50 yards away with their uh, handle of whiskey and big, you know, suitcase-sized thing of natural light, all silver, shining in the moonlight. And uh, I waved them as I leave the yard because they couldn't catch the train because they're drunk or nodding off. Um, so even though they were on the road as long as me, I logged five times as many miles because they were too busy uh, allegedly having a good time to actually get on the train. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's an odd situation. So beyond the um, maybe just the sheer oddity of it, or um, what's what's your? I imagine there's um, a couple of different draws, but aesthetically, um, tell me about why. You know, what's the, it's not just simply, it's maybe especially for you, not a social thing, though you seem to have kind of an anthropological interest in all of it as oh, yeah. well. So I definitely have a sociological interest in the whole thing, like the history of these subcultures. Yeah. Um, but me riding trains is actually about as predictable as it gets because um, my grandfather was a railroad worker on my dad's side, briefly, and my dad was a maintenance of way worker for CSX for 20 years when I was a kid. I grew up literally the CSX main line was right behind our backyard up until I was five years old. 
My dad lived in a camp car most of the time. He was gone for two weeks at a time, maintaining the rails all along the East Coast. And I've had train on the brain uh, since the day I was born. We had Tonka trucks and, and um, you know, excavators and cranes and toy trains all over the house. And I ended up being a heavy equipment operator and then later on um, a freight train rider. Um, it's super predictable. Um, I just happened to fall in this subcultural milieu where late 90s, early 1000s, a bunch of my friends um, also had a traveling bug. They started riding trains and um, I kind of fell into it naturally because of this romance I had for for travels from my dad. I think something in me in general that just has wanderlust and can't sit still for, for too long. Um, and then you look into the history of train riding and everybody knows about the Great Depression, but you realize there's all these amazing blues and folk songs that talk about riding trains. You start listening to Robert Johnson and, and Woody Guthrie and, um, you know, watching old movies like uh, um, uh, Emperor of the North and it kind of just builds up and one day uh, you quit your job and just leave and find yourself on a freight train. So um, it's also it's funny because I'm not I'm not a patriot in any real way, but it's one of the most American things you can do is, uh, you know, head west young man, you quit your job after a breakup with a girl and you're tired of working. I mean, literally, I was working in a, in a box factory in the middle of nowhere in eastern North Carolina for like minimum wage. There was no options for me. I was never going to go to college. I, the idea of sitting still in a university and paying, you know, paying that off for the rest of my life and being surrounded by um, people whose great ambition was to be uh, office drones, that was, that was never going to work for me. So I didn't see any other, I didn't see a way out. And then the train thing happened. I was like, oh, I can just fucking leave for free. I can just have like $200 and live off of it for a long ass time and just live in a backpack. Like, this is like making Dungeons and Dragons real. I can have an adventure. I can still yeah. do that. Yeah, fuck yeah, I'm going to do that. Like, fuck the world. I'm going to just leave. 